Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. Heads up that you also might hear two different hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's January 5th. King Camp Gillette was born on this day in 1855. That is definitely the same Gillette that you may have heard of because of Gillette razors. He was born in Wisconsin but raised in Chicago and was something of a tinkerer when he was a young man. After he started working as a traveling salesman in the 1870s, one of his bosses noticed that he had this habit of tinkering with things and made a suggestion that he try to invent something that was disposable that people would need to buy over and over and over again. At the time, people who shaved mostly did so with straight razors. You bought a straight razor once. They lasted for a really long time. You'd occasionally hone the razor with a whetstone. You would keep it sharp between those honings using a leather strap called a strop. There are people who still prefer to use straight razors. They still do all that. And there were also other so-called safety razors that were supposed to be safer because their blade was encased in a little holder, but these weren't disposable and they had to be professionally sharpened. So in 1895, Gillette was honing a straight razor and he thought, what if instead of this one permanent blade that you had to keep sharp yourself, what if it was a pair of blades in a handle that you could throw the blades away when they got dull? He described it this way, quote, As I stood there with the razor in my hand, my eyes resting on it as lightly as a bird settling down on its nest, the Gillette razor was born. And right from the start, he had the same plan that is still used today when it comes to disposable razor blades. People's first purchase would include the blades and a razor. The razor wasn't the moneymaker, though. The company could even afford to take a loss on the razor part because all that profit was going to be in the disposable blades. Gillette came up with this invention in 1901, and he got a patent on November 15, 1904. An engineer named William Nickerson figured out how to mass-produce the blades. By this point, they had established the Gillette Safety Razor Company in Boston, Massachusetts. They made their first sale in 1903, about 50 razors and 168 blades. By the end of the very next year, the company had produced almost 10,000 razors and more than 12 million blades. World War I helped the company with its sales because the U.S. military started issuing disposable Gillette razors to soldiers, and they were required to shave to help make sure their gas masks would seal correctly around their faces. The idea of selling the razor at a loss because you're going to make all that money on razor blades, that became known as the razor and blades model or the loss leader model of doing business. Gillette died in 1932, but his later years weren't spent so much on razors or on his company. He was spending them on the idea of creating a social utopia. He had published a book on that idea called The Human Drift way back in 1894. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, an outstanding storm. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was January 5th, 1893. Blues and folk musician Elizabeth Cotton was born near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Sources differ on her year of birth, with some saying 1892 and others saying 1895. Cotton was born into a family steeped in a musical tradition. As a child, she often borrowed her brother's instruments, and she taught herself to play the banjo and the guitar. She was left-handed, so it was easier for her to hold the banjo upside down to play it. When her brother left, Cotton had to quit school and take jobs as a domestic worker. By the time she was 11 or 12 years old, she had saved up enough money to buy a Stella Demonstrator guitar for $3.75. She played the guitar upside down, too, and developed a unique picking style. She fretted the strings with her right hand and picked with her left. By the time she was a teenager, she was able to play several different songs. Cotton often stayed up late at night playing the guitar, and her mother would scold her and tell her to stop playing. As a teen, Elizabeth married Frank Cotton. They had one child together not long after, named Lily. As Elizabeth became busy with family life, she became more involved in her church. Leaders at her church urged her to stop playing worldly music. Committed to the church and busy at home, she put down her guitar for years. The Cottons lived in New York City for a while, but when Lily got married and had a child, Elizabeth left Frank and moved to Washington, D.C. to be close to her daughter. She cleaned and sold dolls at a department store for a living. But one day in the department store, she found a lost girl named Peggy Seeger and returned her to her mother, Ruth Crawford Seeger. Elizabeth soon began to work in the household of the Seegers, who were also a musical family. Ruth was a composer and music teacher, and her husband, Charles, was an ethnomusicologist. Cotton would play the guitar at the Seeger home, but the family didn't find out about her musical talent until a few years after she began working for them. Then in her 60s, Elizabeth began recording her songs. Those recorded songs became the 1958 album Folk Songs and Instrumentals with Guitar, released on Folkways Records. The album featured Freight Train, a song that Elizabeth composed when she was a child. She had her performing debut at Swarthmore College with Mike Seeger, Ruth and Charles' son, and she continued to perform solo in concert and at folk festivals. She was on the same ticket as performers like Skip James and Muddy Waters, and her music became a staple of the folk revival of the 1960s. Cotton continued playing and touring throughout the U.S. and Europe into the 1980s. She played her last show in New York City in 1987, months before her death. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.